And if the rest of you could please stand for the reading of God's word. Our passage this morning is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you're paying close attention to your bulletin, you might be confused right now because it says that Pastor Michael Langer is going to be preaching, and I'm clearly not as tall or bald as Pastor Michael Langer. Uh, you know, we realize to our dismay that he has not yet mastered the art of being in two places at once, and with a delayed start, uh, he can't be both here in Palos. So he will be joining with us next week, um, and I am looking forward to looking at this passage together with you. But before we go any further, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, it is our, our privilege, it is our need to be gathering together as your people as we are this morning. And whether we feel thirsty for it or not, we are needing to hear your word. And so we pray, knowing that you are a generous God, knowing that we stand in your grace and you withhold no good thing from us, that you would now bless us with the ability to hear your word in a way that shapes us and renews us and makes us more like Christ Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So um, if you were here last week, perhaps you might remember that I said that in Philippians we see a statement that's really simple, it's just four words, but a statement that if we internalize, we will be utterly changed by. And that statement is that to live is Christ. To live is Christ. And I said last week that I realized that when we actually unpack what that means and how significant it is, that it takes some time, and I invited you, if you are not feeling convinced by it yet, to continue to walk with us over the next few weeks as we kind of think through more and more what this means. And this morning, I'm going to do something that I probably shouldn't do if I want to convince you that what I'm saying is true. And that is I'm going to talk about how to live as Christ means we're called to suffer. This is not what sales technique tells us to do, but this is what Paul does. You know, when Paul was speaking in the passage we looked at last week, he was speaking of how he was suffering. And in the middle of suffering, he was, fear, he was being able to, joy, to, be, to be joyful because for him to live is Christ. And now in these verses, he turns it around saying, and the things that I am enduring, you, brothers and sisters, are called to endure as well. And what we see here is really three things that Paul teaches us. He says that you are called 
to suffer for Christ. But he also says, you are able to suffer for Christ. And then perhaps most surprisingly, you want to suffer for Christ. You are called to suffer for Christ, you are able to suffer for Christ, and you actually want to suffer for Christ. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. First, you, if you are a Christian, you are called to suffer for Christ Jesus. Now, to kind of get to this point, I'm going to back up and just spend some time for a little bit talking about about Philippi, the city of Philippi that Paul is writing to, so we can understand the situation here. And the thing to know about Philippi is that they were an incredibly patriotic city. About 100 years before this letter is written, there was a really important battle that was fought, and as a result, the, the, the victors made Philippi a Roman colony. And it's a big deal to be a Roman colony. That gives you all sorts of rights with Rome. That means everyone who is part of that city is now a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, you have protections that no one else can have. And this is something that filled the city of Philippi with pride. It, it, it put them on the map. I mean, in, in Acts, when Acts is talking about Philippi, it says it is a leading city in Macedonia. And that's because even though it's hundreds of miles away from Rome, it was made a Roman colony. And that had an effect on the culture of this city. And perhaps I think the best way to describe how it shaped them is to say in some ways Philippi is the little brother of Rome. Like have you seen, like usually this is not when they're too old, but if you have like two brothers, one who's a few years younger than the other, sometimes you'll see how they want to wear everything their older brother wears, do everything their older, they just think their older brother is the coolest person in the world and they want to be exactly like him. It drives the older brother crazy, but it's cute to the parents. That's Philippi. Philippi wants to be Rome. Their, their city layout is basically Rome's city layout. Their architecture is basically like Romans, Rome's buildings. They, even though they're in a Greek-speaking area, they choose to speak Latin whenever they can. They dress in Roman fashion. Their coins are supposed to look like Roman coins. They want to be Rome. And they want to express how much they love Rome. It's not just in their architecture. You see this in their gatherings. Every time they would gather, whether it was for a funeral or a wedding, or whether it was a parade or a sporting event or a town meeting, there would be a time where they are honoring Rome and the emperor. And the best way really to describe it is it would be a time of worship. They would offer sacrifices to honor the emperor, treating him almost like a god. In fact, that would be the language that would sometimes be used. But the two most common things that they would say when they were making oaths and they were offering sacrifices about this emperor is that he is our lord, because he rules over all, and he is our savior, because he established peace. Those are the two words that were most frequently used. Nero, or whoever the emperor is, he's our lord and savior, and we pledge our honor, our ultimate allegiance to him. And that's how it was done in Philippi for decade after decade until Paul and his friend Silas roll around. And what are they doing when they come into Philippi? We're told that they are speaking the gospel of Christ. Now those words we're so familiar with, gospel and Christ, we don't recognize how, how radically political they actually are. 
So that word gospel is not something that was just invented by Christians. It was a word that was used even before. And it was a word that was usually used to speak of a great victory made by a leader, whether it's an army leader or a king. And Christ, remember, isn't Jesus' last name. It's, It's a title. It means Messiah, anointed one, God's appointed leader and savior. So Paul is coming into this incredibly patriotic city And he's saying, I have news of the great victory of this leader who has conquered sin and death. This great leader who is God's appointed Lord and Savior. And I know that you are excited about your emperor, but there is someone who is even more of a Lord, more of a Savior, who demands your greater allegiance than Rome and this emperor. Now, when you think about what that city's culture is like, you can just imagine that it's not going to take too long before there's trouble. And if we were to look at the chapter of Acts, Acts 16, we would see what happens. At a certain point, charges are raised. The charges specifically are that Paul is advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans. That's exactly what they say. As Romans, we can't do this. And eventually he's imprisoned, he and Silas, and the next day, to make a long story short, they are sent away from the city. But this is months after Paul arrived, and in the meantime, a small, young church has been formed. There are now Christians in Philippi, Christians who have believed this gospel, who say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior above all else. And now they're left to figure out, what do we do in a city like this. I guess at first they were able to kind of stay, you know, under the radar. They would intentionally kind of miss the portions of the ceremonies where they would have to swear oaths to emperor as lord and savior. They would, you know, just kind of like hide certain ways so that no one would recognize. But at a certain point, as this church continued to grow and become known, people would start noticing these people They're not with us in this. And so the question is, what do we do in this situation? And it's now 10 years later. So this church is just a little bit younger than our church, Trinity, is. About 10 years later that Paul is writing and he's anticipating the problem. And you might have noticed that he says, you are now experiencing the same kinds of struggles that I'm experiencing. I'm imprisoned by Rome and you're getting in trouble because of your relationship to the Roman government. And he says, here's what you need to do. Don't back down. Don't back down. Your calling in this situation is to suffer for Christ Jesus. See, the opening verse of our passage is is really emphatic. Paul's like saying, when he says that word, only. He's saying, I've got one thing. If you don't hear anything else, here's the one thing I want to make sure that you hear. Here's what you need to do. And it's translated for us, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that translation is not quite there. Uh, ESV is almost always pretty good, but this is one place. The word, let your manner of life, in Greek is politeustha. And the only reason I give you the, the Greek word is because you can hear that first part, polit. It's the same word that we get politics from. It's it's an inherently political word. It's saying, let your citizenship, you know, live live your life as citizens. It's, It's that idea. 
And when Paul is saying is let your manner of life be worthy, let your spending your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ, he is saying remember what your citizenship is. You've sworn allegiance now to the Lord Jesus. You have transferred your political identity. I don't know if you've thought about that before, but when we are baptized and place our faith in Christ, we become members of a new society, of a new government. We belong to the kingdom of God. We're citizens. And so Paul is saying, that's who you are. You are citizens. And so you need to live in such a way that fits that. Be true to your identity as citizens where Jesus is your Lord and Savior. That's what that, only do this, live rightly as citizens of this new kingdom. Now, what does that mean? Well, here's where Paul goes with it. He's saying, in your words and in your actions, in all that you do, you should be demonstrating that your ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. In your words and your actions, you should be showing that your ultimate allegiance is to Jesus because that's what it means to live as those who are citizens of this heavenly kingdom. And so he, he says specifically, there are that you are standing, he wants to see that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you hear that there's two metaphors here, both that are unpacking this idea. First, that you're called to stand, to be unyielding, to not compromise. So when you are in the assembly and oaths are being made and people recognize you're Christians and so they start looking at you and a part of you is thinking, you know what, words don't really mean that much. God knows my heart. I will just say it because otherwise I get in trouble. Don't compromise. Stand firm because you need to show that your ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. Or if you're at a wedding and everyone is participating in these sacrifices and eating of these sacrifices to show that they're on the same and it would just feel really rude not to do it. You need to stand firm. Because your calling is even to suffer, if that's what you call it, because you're a citizen and you're supposed to live your life as a citizen that belongs to Jesus. Our calling is to stand, he says. But there's another metaphor here. He also says not only to stand, but to be striving for the gospel. Of course, that language of striving implies exertion, implies pushing ourselves, and implies giving our energy towards something. Saying it, you, you belong to Jesus. And what that means as citizens of his kingdom is that right now this church in Philippi, and it's true for our church as well, you are an outpost. An outpost of the great kingdom of God. And you have a mission. And your mission is to uphold the faith of the gospel. It is to seek to enable people who are all around you to know that Jesus is the true Lord and Savior, that they might have faith in him and be saved. You are to strive, you are to exert yourself that others might recognize that Jesus is the true king. Stand firm and strive in such a way that you are showing that your ultimate allegiance is to Christ Jesus. That's what it means to let your life be a citizen in the appropriate way of the gospel. Now I want to say that Paul was not under any delusions of what he was calling the Philippian church to. He didn't say do these things as long as it's safe but if it gets a little bit difficult then pull back. 
Now he knows that them doing this in such a politically charged environment was going to cost them. Verse 28, he says, do this without fear of your opponents. He knows they're going to experience opposition. And then it gets even more intense in verse 29, for it has been granted to you to suffer. He knows that what he is calling when he says, only do this, only live as citizens worthy of the gospel, he is saying, you are called to suffer for Christ Jesus. And that can mean being excluded, it can mean awkwardness, but it can also mean imprisonment, and it can also even mean death. But Paul knows this is inevitable because he understands the world. He understands that in this world, there are different forces that seek our ultimate allegiance. Sometimes it's political, like in this situation. Sometimes it can be economical, like work. But there are things that demand our ultimate allegiance. And when Christianity steps in and says, no, our ultimate allegiance is to Christ, then it becomes horribly offensive. I can almost guarantee that if the Philippian church decided to play it safe and keep their religion private, things would look very different. If they just had their own personal devotions at home, but then when they were out, they were good citizens, not causing any waves, no one would have a problem. It's that what they did challenged the ultimate allegiance that was part of that community. And this isn't just a hypothetical. This is something that we can actually see today. As I understand it, and I'm no expert, as I understand it in China, there are two kinds of churches. There is the public church, and there's the underground church. Now, the public church is, is fine. It has no problems in terms of, like, the, the government is, is positive towards it. The underground church, on the other hand, people are imprisoned for it. And what's the difference between the two? The, the, the public church is one that does not challenge the Communist Party in any way. It's sanctioned by the Communist Party. They have control, and so their focus is more on how to be good citizens. But the underground church, well, that says our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus, even if that means it brings us into conflict with the world around us, even if it means it brings us into conflict with the Chinese government. And that is what makes it offensive. It challenges the ultimate allegiance that is demanded by other people. Now, before we start kind of thinking personally of, well, I'm so glad I'm not in China that I don't have to face that decision, I want to put it to you that we also, in America, have that exact question of, are we going to be private Christians that don't make waves, or are we going to be outposts where in our lives we are showing that our ultimate allegiance is to Christ. You and I face this decision. And I'm not talking about stuff like whether we should bake cakes for certain weddings. I know that's the thing that people are talking about right now. Let me bring it closer to home. Say you have a boy who is maybe, I don't know, like six or seven, and he loves baseball. And he plays it, he's good at it, but he but you realize that if he ever wants to play baseball in high school, and you're told this by pretty much every parent, that if he wants to do it, he's going to have to be on a travel team, eventually be on a club. And you hear about that and you look, man, that's expensive, but it also means lots of weekends that you're traveling. But here's the real kicker. It also means most Sundays during baseball season. 
you're going to be occupied with baseball, which means your kid and you are going to have to miss at least eight weeks of church. Because why? Because the team comes first. So let me ask you, in that moment, what does it look like to show that your ultimate allegiance is to Christ Jesus? Now that's just an example. We have others that we can think of. Decisions that we have to make with work. Decisions that we might have to make with school. Decisions that we might have to make with, with relationships. You know, while I'm in an uncomfortable place, let me keep it uncomfortable for a little bit while. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you have told someone gently and lovingly about Jesus? About how he is the Lord and Savior of all. Let me see, I'm not asking these questions to, to make us feel guilty. I'm asking to expose to say this is hard stuff. And we are foolish if we don't think we are faced with the same temptations and the same complexities as other people in the world. Because here's what we know. The reason that we struggle sometimes to talk to people directly about Jesus and the reason that we struggle with some of these decisions is we know it is going to cost us to show that our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. It's going to cost us. It will cost us opportunities. It might cost us promotions. It might cost us awkwardness with people that we care about. But I'm confident that if Paul is telling the Philippian church to stand firm, even if that means being imprisoned or to death, he would say the same thing to us, that we are citizens, that we are called to stand firm, to strive for the gospel, that our calling is to suffer for Christ. Now, to say this, if you're honest with yourself, if you're anything like me, means you immediately start going, okay, maybe I believe that, but I don't know if I have it in me to do what I'm called to do. And I want to say that Paul actually anticipates that, and he recognizes, and he tells us in this passage, you are wrong because you have the very power of God inside of you. If you look at verse 28, Paul says that when we respond rightly to opposition, you know, without fear, unified, standing firm, he says, it is a clear sign to them, that is those who oppose us, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So it's a sign, sign what first? of the destruction of our opponents. How does that work? When we refuse to yield to pressure, when we stand firm in our confidence that Jesus is our ultimate leader, that he is the one that we give all allegiance to, we are showing to the world around us that the things that they're placing their hope on in are not nearly as important as they think. So, one of the clearest examples of this is with the Roman government. As the centuries progress over the next many decades, the Roman government becomes increasingly opposed to Christianity. There's a time under an emperor Decius, a few decades, many decades later, where you need to have a document proving that you have sacrificed to the emperor. And if you don't have that document, it's on the penalty of death. And many upon many Christians were killed because they refused to compromise. And yet the church continued on. 
And the church continuing on, even amidst this direct opposition, revealed that as powerful as the Roman emperor thought he was, he could not stop the gospel. It exposed his eventual destruction. And the Roman emperor did eventually be destroyed while the church continues on. It is a sign of us maintaining faithfulness. It's a sign of their destruction, but it's a sign of something else. It says, it's a sign of your salvation and that from God. What is he saying here? He's saying that if we are able to maintain faithfulness, fearlessly, unitedly, standing firm, that is a sign that there's something going on that's bigger than us. It's a sign that God is at work in us. And he's already signaled that. We just don't see it. But verse 27 says that we are called to stand firm in one spirit. And that probably should be capitalized here like it is like in the NIV because he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. He's saying when he's calling us to stand firm, he's saying stand firm by the one spirit. That is the spirit of God who is at work in you. Paul is not saying I want you to suffer and it's just going to rely on your own willpower. He's like, no, here's your calling. And your calling is to take hold of the work of the spirit in you because he will empower you to do this. And we know that the spirit can do this because if you've read the book of Acts, that's what we see the spirit doing in every chapter. I mean, we looked at Acts a few years ago, and do you remember what happens? As the Spirit comes down upon God's people, it gives them words to say so that they can speak of Jesus and of their allegiance to Jesus, and people are changed. And as the Spirit comes down, what happens to the church? They learn to love each other in remarkable ways. Everything is in common. There is a unity because the power of the Spirit is at work in them. And when they are afraid, and they are afraid, they pray. And what, does, what happens? It says, as they pray, they are filled with the Spirit and they are given boldness in the face of opposition. That's how this happens, by the Spirit. You know, I think one of our problems is we are not convinced that the Spirit who was at work in Acts is the same Spirit that is at work in us. We're not convinced that God has given us his power to fulfill his mission. But Paul says, stand firm by the one spirit. God has given you his powerful spirit. And the goal of the spirit is to unite us and make us more like Christ and enable our allegiance to go deeper and deeper that we might show the world. That's why the spirit is given to us. I believe our church, this church right here, is capable of far more than any of us realize. Not because we are so great, but because God's Spirit is so great. And so if you find yourself daunted by this command that we are called to suffer for Jesus, that is not a bad place to be as long as it leads you to prayer and say, God, please, by your Spirit, help me to do what I cannot do. Paul is telling us, you can you are able to suffer for Christ, not by your own strength, but because of the Spirit. So we see here that we are called as citizens belonging to Jesus, filled by the Spirit. We are called to suffer for Christ. We are able to suffer for Christ. But here's the part that's especially, I think, hard for us to understand. We want to suffer for Christ. That's what Paul says. 
says, to you it has been granted not only to believe in Christ Jesus, but to suffer for him. And that word, it has been granted, it literally is, you have been graced. It's the word grace. It's saying, here is a gift of God that is given to you. The gift of suffering for Christ Jesus. It is a gift that you should welcome. Now, just to put things bluntly, that is super counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, it, I mean, it's one thing to say that we should rejoice as a gift when we see success through the gospel. We can rejoice when we see the gospel working on us and maturing us, but to say that it is a gift when we are suffering like when we really actually think about what suffering is, like losing opportunities, imprisonment meaning disconnected with your families, even losing your life, how in the world can there be joy in that? And it's important to understand that Paul is not saying that joy is in suffering itself. Elsewhere, when he talks about suffering, he says all of the world is groaning, longing for the day of redemption when there will be no more suffering. Now, listen to his actual words that he says. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Do you see how he actually repeats himself? It's redundant because he wants you to understand what the gift is. It's not the gift of suffering. It's the gift of suffering for Jesus. It is a gift to suffer, not just to suffer, but to suffer for Jesus. Perhaps some of you are familiar with the story of Nathan Hale. He was, during the Revolutionary War, he was a spy. He was caught by the British. And he is famous, really, for one thing that he said right before he was hanged. I regret that I only but have one life to lose for my country. I regret that I only have but one life to lose for my country. What is he saying when he is saying that? He's saying that he so believed in the cause of what they were doing in the Revolutionary War. He so believed in the dream of his country that there was a sense that it gave his life meaning and value that he could give it for something greater than himself. And do you understand what that is talking about there? We all are going to give our lives for something. That's just the way life works. You don't hold on to life. You spend it one way or the other. Eventually, we come to realize that whether we're 30 or 50 or 80, at some point we realize that life is what we give ourselves to. Can you imagine anything greater to give yourself to than Christ Jesus? To know that as you're exhausting yourself, to know that as you're enduring things, you are doing it because of the one who so deeply loved you that he saved you, and now you are able, you have this opportunity to offer something to him, to show your love to him through suffering. Is there anything better that you could spend your life on than that? Imagine this week you are given this opportunity, this, you know, you're brought into the office and they say, here is a promotion that we want to offer to you and it's going to increase your pay, it clearly increases prestige, 
but it's also going to increase your time commitment in such a way that when you think about what you consider your responsibilities right now, the way that you're called to mentor your children and, and help them to spiritually grow, the way that at this moment you feel called to serve your church, you realize that you cannot take this promotion and fulfill what you believe you're calling to be. Now in that moment, if you say no to it, there is going to be a sting, there is going to be a pain, there is real sacrifice that is made. But imagine if you can recognize at that moment that what you are doing is suffering for Christ's sake. That the one who has loved you so completely by dying for you, here is a chance to honor him to show love to him by giving something that is meaningful to you. There is a privilege in that. But I want to say that, that when Paul is speaking about how it's been granted to you to suffer for the sake of Christ, I think he is saying something more, something that I confess that I don't even fully understand, but it is clearly there when we get to chapter 3. Paul in chapter 3 speaks of this longing to know the power of Christ's resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. He is longing to experience the fellowship of his suffering. And here's what I think Paul is saying, that when we find ourselves seeking to be faithful to Christ and it becomes costly and there is suffering, there is a sense in that moment that Jesus draws especially near to us. That just as he went to the cross for us, and now we are following in this cross-shaped path, as we go there, Jesus is there for us and with us, strengthening. And there is a sense that even as we're enduring a kind of death in the face of suffering, we are experiencing in a way that we never have before the power of the resurrection, giving us hope and life and joy. And I suspect Paul would say, if if you this morning come into this church and you believe things with your head, but you feel just spiritually dry and you don't know what's going on and you feel distant from God, there are a number of different reasons that could be, but maybe it could be that you are called to make choices that involve suffering for Christ that you are unwilling yet to go. You are not yet willing to go where Jesus would take you. And if you were, you would experience the nearness of Jesus as you follow him in this cross-shaped path. Paul is saying there is a gift, there is a joy that he cannot even fully express that comes as we, by the power of the Spirit, are willing to suffer for Christ Jesus. You are called to suffer for Christ. By the power of the Spirit, you are able to suffer for Christ. And it is a gift. And I couldn't help but notice when we were singing this hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. If you're not familiar with it, it's written by Martin Luther, a person who literally was this close to death because of what he was saying about his faithfulness to Christ. And this person who has been kind of forged in suffering writes these words in the very end of this hymn. He says, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever 
he's saying to live, even in the midst of suffering, is Christ. As is our custom, I'd like to invite us just to take a couple of minutes, just kind of reflect on what this passage is calling us to, to spend some time with God, struggling and even confessing our sins quietly, and then I will lead us in confession together. So let's spend some time quietly before God. Father, when we, when I um, take these words seriously, um, I feel exposed by them, and maybe many of us feel this way. Um, it exposes the fact that a good portion of our heart is not yet ultimately convinced that our allegiance is to Christ, that we have other things that are more dear to us than him. And we confess those things to you knowing that that is not right and that's not where we want to be. It also exposes fear where we are not yet willing and able to trust you in the face of things that are challenging because if we really think about suffering, it is not something that we want. So Father, we confess our divided hearts. We confess our lack of faith. And we look to you. We look to you for forgiveness knowing that you have forgiven us, we ask for forgiveness once again. And we also look to you, the power of your spirit. Lord, would you please lead us, empower us, enable the step forward in faith, not in our own might, but by the power of your spirit that we might show the world that Jesus is the true Lord and Savior of all. We pray this in his name. Amen. Friend, as those who have confessed our sins, again, hear the good news of the gospel. We believe there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. We are convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God.